Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I often joke that my job is to read. I read my sources in Arabic and Turkish. They're the evidence I'm going to base my dissertation on. I read the work of others, also in Arabic, Turkish, but mostly in English. And these are the secondary sources. They're the arguments that others have made after doing their own work, using their own sources in other languages. I might identify as a historian, and in particular with the fields of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies, Uh, But I read across different disciplines. I read anthropology, sociology, linguistics, literary criticism, novels. It all fits together, I'm convinced. All of these different forms of knowledge will inspire me in some way, will give me ideas, will allow me to flex my critical muscles. But I've never really seen anything like Pitfalls of Scholarship by Ahmed Atif Ahmed, UCSB professor of religion, Harvard PhD, an expert on Sharia or Islamic jurisprudence an author of many books and articles, including The Fatigue of the Sharia. The book, Pitfalls, it's basically a series of essays. Each essay connects to the others in the series, and themes string across the book, popping up here and there to remind you that they're on Ahmed's mind. It's almost like a novel in that regard. But then what's the subject of this novel? This book is pretty much what it describes, Pitfalls of Scholarship, Reflections from the Field of Islamic Studies. It is essentially a meditation on what it is to be an academic in the humanities and social science, written by a practitioner of Islamic studies. Thus, it's part of a longer conversation. And for those of you that aren't members of the academy, not producing research, this book is still important. It's written accessibly. It's ruminations on the production of knowledge, something that we all have a stake in. So on this episode of New Books in Middle East Studies... I, N.A. Mansour, Nadra, I bring you my interview with Ahmed Ahmed on Pitfalls of Scholarship, a book so innovative it almost has no genre. Is it a work of theory, a work of philosophy? Is it a memoir? I put this to him. So it's called Pitfalls of Scholarship, Lessons from Islamic Studies, right? And I just kept thinking, I don't think that this is necessarily a theoretical work. I also don't think it's not a theoretical work. I think there was so much in there that I thought was so much more useful than reading Foucault for the hundredth time. I mean, Foucault is great and has contributed much to how people think or, you know, is an influence. But I thought that this was so much more useful because I felt like it was, I was having a conversation with someone about, I mean, conversations were taking my notes, not directly, of course, but about the state, the state of the academy, about the state of this field in particular, but also sort of about, I mean, it's called Lessons from Islamic Studies. I think the book is not necessarily directed simply at practitioners. No, that's true. That's exactly right. I mean, actually, okay, so it, the book struggled to be classified even in the categories, very large number of categories that Paul Grave, which is a fantastic publisher that has this long history and they just, they're so rich in their categories. But the book struggled to be classified even in this large collection of categories. And I start from the subtitle. Yeah, it's Lessons from Islamic Studies. That's the, 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 the humility side. I am not really, even Islamic Studies is too big for me. I am not a scholar of political and legal Roman history. I am not a scholar of the history of science. I use all these things and they come up. and. It's a fair point for anybody who understands these things better and more deeply than me to instruct me and to tell me you got this wrong. Uh, it, so so it, Lessons from Islamic Studies is the starting point. It's limited by the mind that uh, was, you know, educated in the 20th and 21st century or the 14th and the 15th Islamic century in the manner in which education is, is available uh, to people and who are called Islamic studies scholars, Islamic legal studies scholars. I'm, of course, uncomfortable with all the categories, but that's just a way to make things intelligible. 
Now, Pitfalls of Scholarship, I actually think, is a successful uh, title, brief. Uh, it is The book is about university knowledge, both its possibilities and its limits, and more emphasizing the limits, so Pitfalls of Scholarship is perfect. Um, it doesn't talk about all scholarship, and again, the subtitle is useful, right? But when I get into, when I get excited inside the book and bring examples, uh, I avail myself of all the examples that I could find. I've learned a lot from Robert Richards, for example, in historian of science, Chicago historian of science, who influenced me significantly. Uh, I learned, as I said, from Richard Tuck. I learned from people who study Roman legal history and have ideas of, from scholars of, Islam, of, of American law, modern American law, even though I've never received the JD. I studied modern Egyptian law, as I mentioned, in the Maidan piece. But I wanted to do a JD too. I wanted to study American law comprehensively. Never happened. But I kept reading uh, over the years. And I also realized after 10, 15 years now of doing this, that a lot of lawyers who go through the degree and finish it don't know enough about American law. So it's not really the degree that makes you learn the law. It's what you do with it and after it. Of course, I would have done more if I had finished the degree. If I had studied, I just took one elective and I tried to take constitutional and torts and contracts. And the, the Harvard Law School wouldn't do that because it's it's a, I mean, it's it's a specific degree. It's kind of a money maker for the university, and you can't just put a, a JD on top of a PhD easily like this. So it didn't work. But I, uh, 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 yeah, I'm interested in all these things, and I can't get to the bottom of them. So, And that's the weakness, again. That's the weakness of the book. It is a kind of meta-theory, meta there's no question, because I am asking basic questions that would fall in a different age and a different time under epistemology. If we were still allowed to talk about epistemology the way a 19th century or an early 20th century philosopher would talk about it, uh, you know, that would be either a good or a bad book on epistemology. I take legal epistemology to be my starting point. It's, it's easier. It's more intelligible. But, but I keep asking, what is the difference between knowing that this is the right law within a certain tradition or that this is the right thing to do in terms of human affairs more broadly versus knowing this about the physical world, knowing this about a certain natural phenomenon? And, and we keep learning that the, what we take for granted as science or nature wasn't always like that. There's a book that uh, I want to recommend. It's called Before Nature. The Chicago Press just published this year by a Berkeley sociologist who talks about how Assyro-Babylonian scholars talked about natural phenomena but never had a concept of nature. Think about this. Think about physics without nature, about the how you know cuneiform knowledge never had this concept of nature. It's, it's, see how hard it is? We're talking about language and how it constrains us. Try to make two or three meaningful sentences about natural knowledge without nature. Um, and, and, you know, the more we learn about these things, we realize that, again, we, we limit ourselves when we insist that we live within certain parameters. Um, so, yeah, the book struggles to be classified, but it is a kind of meta theory that insists on going back to basic questions. Just to give you an overview of the book, it has an introduction, a semi-autobiographical conclusion, and four chapters. The first chapter is really about, well, I think it's fair to say that it's a partial defense of the humanities and how it intersects with greater society. The next chapter is a little bit more specific. This is where he draws on Islamic studies and he looks at Abu Hamad al-Ghazadi, the 11th century scholar who eventually evolves into one of history's great mystics. And it basically considers him as an academic and what his turn to mysticism is. And I'll get back to that in a moment. Then there's the third chapter, which is about the scholar in scholarship and how ultimately you can't really remove the scholar, the individual from scholarship. Chapter four is about nationalism and democracy. And ultimately, he concludes that the university has to be protected um, no matter the state of a nation, no matter it be chaotic. Um, 
democratic or orderly, the institution of the university must be protected. So let's go back to chapter two, which as I mentioned is about Al-Ghazali. So Al-Ghazali was a polymath, as many in the Islamic intellectual tradition tend to be, uh, well known as a scholar of jurisprudence, uh, as a mystic, as one who studies sort of Islamic moral ethics. But what I find interesting about Ahmed Ahmed's take on him is that Ghazali Ghazali has turned to mysticism, which ultimately is what he's remembered for. But Ghazali's turned to mysticism, um, which makes him iconic in the study of Sufism, both by those who practice and by those who study Sufism on an academic basis. Ghazali, Ahmed doesn't quite buy Ghazali's turn to the mystical. And in that, I wonder whether Ahmed sees another academic, a fellow academic, despite the fact that he lived close to a millennia before us, that he sees in his term to mysticism a frustration that Ahmed understands himself. So I made this comment, and this is what he had to say. There are moments where I feel totally undone because I... I know I can't do certain things. I can't learn certain things. I can't understand certain things. And that's bugging me. Uh, I was reading the, this morning I was talking actually to my son and my wife and I brought something to talk about, to, to, to relate to what I was saying. The introduction to the Digest of Justinian. This is 11 people collecting like 1400 years of law and they, they wrote this amazing text that's you know, summarizes all pagan uh, legal knowledge. Uh, but they're all Christian now, and they want to say that this is now Christian law. But they say, they talk in the beginning about how difficult it was. So they say, you could not, people thought this was humanly impossible. There are hundreds of books, thousands of books, actually. Books means tracts, little, like pamphlets. So they have these thousands of tracts, and there is a lot of repetition, and they're struggling. I feel the same way sometimes. You probably feel the same way where you wish you could know more, you could learn more, and you could understand all this and, and, you know, see God and see humans and see history and see science and all these things clearly. And then you would be happy, right? But you can't. You can't. You just, all the time, you're frustrated. You're, you're feeling limited. And, of course, that makes me sympathize with, with people who've done it, even if they arrived at different conclusions. Of course, Ghazali's conclusion is really mysterious. This idea of saying, I am, yeah, I got it, and it's, uh, it's just that you have to do what I, what is exactly, what is he doing? I mean, I met people in Egypt who, who also made the similar claim that they had these revelations, and so it just, I don't see it. It doesn't happen to me like that. So I sympathize from a distance, let's say. Throughout the book, Ahmad develops his own terms to put forward his arguments, which I believe are ultimately born out of his frustrations with Islamic studies. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it and putting my own frustrations, which I've expressed many times to him throughout the course of this interview, on the text of the book itself. So one of these terms is the anachronism police. We'll get into that in a bit. And then there's harvardosis. Harvardosis, which he defines at two different points in the book, to my count, I might be wrong, is the idea that fake prestige sells. And it also refers to delusions people have of elite institutions. So I want to be clear, in the book itself, Ahmed is explicit in that he went to Harvard for his PhD and that he benefited humongously from the institution. But he doesn't approach it with an uncritical eye, and that's something I admire greatly about him. Yeah, I mean, I. it's funny because you say that you sort of go through phases, and that's really... That's a relief to hear because I think to anyone in this line of work, there are other frust- I mean, there are other frustrations that I felt came through in the book. Okay, like I felt like my theory behind your writing of the book, and maybe this is me employing some of the techniques of the anachronism police. This might also be me superimposing my own frustrations with our discipline on the book again. Is that? you're really frustrated with sort of the sociology of our field and how people interact with one another. Um, but an aspect of the sociology is never knowing enough. And that's also something I feel, I, I, I personally think that the humanities, its greatest contribution is curiosity, um, to inspire curiosity as a human value. And I 
I recently told someone, I think one of the biggest, and this is something I sort of read into your different discussions of harvardosis. I don't necessarily think this is what you mean by harvardosis, but I do think a problem in our field is complacence. I feel like Middle East studies and Islamic studies don't touch as much as they should, especially in the modern period. And people who are modern Middle East historians often don't have training in basic Islamic studies or understand basics of what Islam is. There is, a, there is an insight from Thomas Kuhn, from the structure of scientific revolutions, 1961. The lesson is very simple. That never left me. The lesson is, in an academic community, um, it, so what he was saying, scientists are neither innovative nor independent nor free, none of the above. In fact, to be productive scientists, you have to be complacent, as you put it. You have to believe in the group, and you have to follow what's going on for a long time. Now, he has to also, Kuhn has to explain how progress happens, how these leaps of faith, let's say, within science happen. They happen when somebody takes the chance of looking like a charlatan, because Galileo and Copernicus and Einstein and even Newton, to an extent, at least early in his life, didn't look just um, um, like a heretic. I mean, a heretic is really the wrong word always. They looked like fools. They looked stupid. They looked like charlatans. They looked like they didn't know enough. They didn't read. They didn't comprehend the old. Uh, when, you know, maybe to an extent, sometimes you need to ignore the old to be innovative. So this is one theme, I think, that comes to me from what you just said. So, and, and harvardosis actually is not completely uh, irrelevant to this because part of the fear is not just that you're afraid uh, of the gurus in the, in the field. You're afraid of the institutions that represent excellence. And you can't believe yourself when you discover something that's against the majority. You can't believe yourself when it tells you you are probably right and the majority is wrong. You can't believe yourself. So you can't really have the courage to come up with what you discovered. That's one element. The second element I think you mentioned now specific to Middle Eastern Islamic studies. Yeah, who's an Islamic studies scholar? Who's a Middle Eastern scholar? Uh, Middle Eastern studies scholar. We, I have a, you know, I know enough of them who are so focused, so limited, and that makes them productive. And they think that that's what makes them good. In fact, they even are really impolite sufficiently that they would attack uh, the, the the people who have this uh, urge to be encyclopedic and ask basic questions like, you know, what is beyond Middle Eastern studies? What does it look like if you? study science, or if you read in the history of science, or if you, if, if, let's say you're a scholar of Islamic law, how about Roman law? I mean, you could sit in Islamic law and always feel afraid of the influence thesis, that Islamic law was somewhat influenced or affected by the laws that came before, Jewish law, Roman law, and so on. And I had that uh, sensibility when I was at graduate But then once you just leave your field, you'll begin to have fewer problems with this assertion, and you will see it differently. Of course, you'll see it in a much more nuanced way than, than the way others saw it. So the second element in what you're saying, so one is conformity and fear of seeing what you think, and two is being imprisoned in the limits of the field, in the, within the parameters of the field. Uh, and, and, and that brings back what we were just saying 10 minutes ago about the limitation of a human being. Part of this has to happen. We're all limited. I, 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 and, and it would be also unethical, really, for me to sit with somebody who doesn't know enough about Roman law and make them convinced that I know enough about Roman law just because I, I, I make these excursions, as I say, into these fields. There has to be a distinction between what you know very well and what you're interested in, but you can't really do to the same extent of excellence. So... Yeah, fear of conformity, can specific problems with Middle Eastern studies. And then I think the third element is, a, is, an, is an element of humanity, too, that, you know, people want jobs, uh, people want to relate to other human beings. Not everybody has the ability to take the risk of sounding crazy. And to be honest with you, too, since you didn't get your first assistant professor job yet, you need, I mean, you need to wait on this. It's, it's just a, it's a high risk. You sit in department meetings, and maybe people think that you're really, really smart. 
but part of them thinks, yeah, but she's just not, she's not going to cut it. They could deny your tenure, even when they think that you're very, very good. So you want to choose the right moment to take that risk. You will be reprimanded anyway, by the way, even because when you do it at full professor, <laughs> there will still be other people saying this guy is an idiot or this guy is crazy or, you know, but, but you, you know, at that time, at that point, I think you can take the risk. You can also come back with an argument. Sometimes actually people who say things like, you know, I don't know how this guy got tenure. I don't know how he, he became influential. They're not sure what they mean by what they said, you know. So you can just look at them and then they just stop, you know, because you know they they have a limited interest in the subject and and they know they can't do what you're doing. But again, so the timing is important. When I was about nineteen and I was exposed to the American Academy for the first time, well, a few months into this exposure, I was speaking to a friend of mine who was a PhD student and was sitting the examinations he needed to pass in order to qualify for his dissertation. And I, for whatever reason, ran into him, struck up a conversation, and he said, knowing well that I was considering applying for a PhD in the near future, you know, you can't write about jihads until you have tenure. And I looked at him and I was just like, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, it's controversial. You won't get tenure if you write about jihad before you get tenure. And I was just, I was astounded because I had this idea of academic freedom drilled into me as soon as I was admitted to the university. You know, like this is a place of freedom. You can say what you wish. Your professors have that same freedom. I mean, jihad itself is complicated, right? Like within Muslim circles, there are two widely discussed notions of jihad. There is the lesser jihad and the greater jihad. And the lesser jihad is that which involves physical conflict, you know, actually struggling physically against someone. That's what jihad means. It's, it's a struggle of sorts, to put it very simply. And then um, there is the greater jihad, and that is the struggle within oneself to be a good person, uh, to overcome temptations to be cruel, to be unkind. However, and I put this to my friend who had told me that you cannot discuss jihad until you have tenure, it didn't seem to matter that this was an extremely nuanced term. It was simply that discussing jihad in any shape or form meant that you probably wouldn't get tenure, that it was controversial, that you were willing to discuss controversial topics, and that made you a liability. And my sense of what academic freedom was, uh, my idealism was shattered. On a similar note, many years later, I went to a mentor of mine uh, who basically taught me what it what intellectual history was and what it was to be a historian of intellectual history or of thought and ideas. And I was struggling with the idea of agency. I said, I don't think anyone has any agency. I said, I think all ideas are conditioned by society. The reason we have ideas is because we live in certain social circles and that's where our ideas come from. After a long conversation, he said to me, you know, some things, some ideas just come from God and you need to deal with it. He said this while very gently edging me towards the door because I had been in there for about an hour, basically bawling my eyes out. So there's that too. So... Basically, knowing that I think a lot about this issue and I, through reading the book, discerned that maybe Ahmed thought a lot about this issue, we had to talk about it. I think you have a slight obsession with the idea of freedom. And I think part of it is the assertion that we have freedom exists within our societies, within academic spheres. I mean, the idea of tenure itself, a tenured professorship basically means that once you achieve a tenured professor, you can't get fired within certain parameters, right? Um, so there's this idea, and the purpose of tenure is academic freedom. Um, so basically, I kind of want to ask you a question that involves a concept that I feel is freedom's strange twin, maybe it's fraternal twin, um, which is agency, because I struggle with the idea of agency when I write about ideas and when I write about how people get ideas. And I also extrapolate that anxiety about agency and I put it on my own work. So I guess I would just, in plain words, want to ask you, does agency 
exists in the American Academy? It's limited by the limits that we uh, hinted at, uh, but let's also explore it further. So, yes, freedom, um, l- let me be honest. I obsess about freedom in a negative and a positive sense. I think people talk about freedom too much, and most people who talk about it all the time don't really enjoy it and don't know what it means. Uh, like when, when people, when Americans say others hate us for our freedom, gosh, that sounds just exactly like, like an insane asylum talk because it's exactly the opposite. You know, you, 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 you drive in a taxi in Cairo, all these oppressed people, and they're much more skeptical of their government than the average American person. The average American person is totally indoctrinated, at least until recently, totally indoctrinated into believing some of these things that are just unbelievable, that could not be said, what George Bush the Younger said in 2003. People believe that stuff. So it's in fact, people here are deluded and less free than they think and less free than the average human being on other continents. Uh, but there's another side of freedom that I am actually I'm very, I'm obsessed about because I am afraid of not having. And that is uh, what we call ijtihad in the uh, Islamic tradition. It's easy to be to fall in taqlid, to fall into taqlid. What is taqlid? Taqlid actually is excellence, essentially. Taqlid is that you understand your teachers very well. You know how to build on their work in a way that they will agree with. Taqlid is the highest excellence. You sit in a, in a defense, in a doctoral uh, defense, and you say new things that are exactly like the old things, and the professors are nodding and happy. And at the end, you get excellent. You know, you get, you get marked as excellent. That's taqlid. Can you define taqlid for us as it's translated, though, and as, like, someone writing a book about Islamic law or Islamic jurisprudence would define it? That's right. No, it, exactly. It's, the word itself is a verbal noun meaning emulation or following in the footsteps of a standard and so it, it, it in in this literal translation it's exactly the opposite of what i said it is being uh, uh dependent being unindependent being incapable of saying something new but it's because but it is excellence in the sense that because you follow in the footsteps you get acknowledged right away in the footsteps of others so Taqlid, yes, the literal lexical meaning of taqlid is uh, not being independent, is following in in the footsteps of others. But because when you do it right, uh, it it amounts to excellence. So I'm afraid of that excellence. So back to your question, yes, I hate claims of freedom that don't make sense. But I myself have an obsession with freedom in that I'm afraid of not having it. I'm afraid of not being free. Um, uh, at least in the academic sense. Now, academic freedom is a very uh, straightforward concept. The academic, uh, the American Association for University Professors back during World War I uh, came up with this idea that, that the professor has to at least be protected from his institution. So academic freedom means that the professor cannot be fired by his institution once he, he uh, or she uh, provides the, his bona fides or her bona fides. So basically, you work for six years or seven years or ten years or whatever. So the quality is of a certain level, and then the university can't come back fifteen years later and say this guy is not good enough. So that's what tenure is. Tenure is a locking in of the agreement based on a trial period or a uh, yeah a period of testing. And once you prove that you're very good, now, Columbia would want you to do it, you know, in nine years. Princeton, uh, these places would say nine years, but other institutions would say six years. Um, and so academic freedom is a very limited concept. It doesn't protect you from society, by the way. So you could have all the academic freedom you have. Let's say Princeton hires you, uh, hopefully, and then you become an assistant professor in that department near Eastern languages or near Eastern studies. Uh, you're protected, yes, from your president, but you're not protected from the society. And actually, unfortunately, free speech uh, collides directly against academic freedom. You'll have some kind of Steve Bannon, some kind of individual who will attack you and you have no protection. 
you're just protected from your president, from the president of the university and the, and the administration. That's what academic freedom is. Something a friend of mine did. Um, she published her book. She got tenure and she's, the book is phenomenal. I loved it. I am a big admirer of her. The minute she got tenure, the gloves came off and I really admire her for this. She started writing op-eds like crazy um, about the subject that she writes about, which is a very hot political issue and has been for a very long time. And I remember thinking that is a very rare human being who can do that because I think, and this sort of, I mean, this is another term that I, I want you to explain to us because I think it, it underlines so much of the book, but also conceptually, I thought this was the concept of Negritus. So I'll give you the concept first and then I'll give you the term that you use. Um, she wasn't afraid of the attacks on her identity. And I, with something that you refer to constantly in the book, that people will look for different ways to dismantle your argument in ways that aren't related to the argument itself. And um, this is one sort of manifestation, and this is the term used in the book, of the anachronism police. So could you break that down that term for us a bit? Sure. So I understand the anachronism police to be people who really mostly don't know the details of their subject. So an argument, for example, that travels 100 years, 600 years, 1,000 years, an argument that may have been made by somebody in Uzbekistan in the 10th century, and I still find it in the 16th. Uh, in Palestine. And I, I'm not saying it's the same argument because when arguments travel, they change. Uh, so, and, I, and I'm very interested in that continuity and I'm very interested in the structure that comes from this. And then somebody reviewing the book says, well, there's a lot of anachronism there. That basically I did not relate the first, uh, the first version of the argument to its context sufficiently. And that person would want me to talk about the person's life, maybe the, the streets they walked, uh, what their family is like, you know, the, oh, this kind of weird scholarship, which assumes that ideas have to originate from certain social circumstances and political circumstances. They, they, they talk about very unlikely connections between the context and the ideas. So I, I take it that this kind of anachronism police, people who insist that we don't talk about the ideas, but talk about the context somehow and relate the context to uh, a, a small the size uh, or side or, or part of the idea, I take them not to know the ideas enough, that they don't really care about the ideas. They don't care about the structure that comes out of arguing. Uh, but they pretend to know the societies where these ideas come. I'm actually, of course, I've never attacked them uh, on that side of their scholarship. So I wouldn't, you know, I didn't go to see, uh, well, I did that partly, but I didn't do it enough that I didn't also want it to, to do the same thing that they, they would do to others, which is to show the weakness of their historicizing of the ideas. Uh, so the anachronism police are people who insist that ideas don't change. They don't know these ideas very well. They don't think philosophically in general. They pretend to, they call themselves historians, or and, and even further, they are historicists in the sense that they connect the ideas to context. And then they, there's nothing left of the idea other than the context. Now, what is the result? Is that Islam is irrelevant today. All ideas that come from what we might call an Islamic heritage or Islamic legacy have contexts. And they're exhausted by their context. So some of it is Arabian, some of it is Persian, some of it is mystical, some of it is this political context or that government or that particular feud or fight between two people. It's a very clever way to make any serious conversation about Islam with its philosophies, with its uh, ideas of moral and legal instruction, totally irrelevant. And I think it actually kind of worked. Uh, it is the anachronism police that got many people in the Arab world and the Middle East uh, to say that Islam is irrelevant to our lives because, you know, it comes from the past and its ideas have context to just go back and find where these ideas originated, we don't have to worry about them. Somehow, that doesn't seem to work in what we call Western civilization. Everybody's still reading Plato. Everybody's still thinking about government and education in terms of things that happened 2,400 years ago. It's just a sign of a culture that's, that lost its confidence uh, about itself, that it always says, well, what comes from the past is just not relevant. I'm not saying not to be critical. Of course, a lot that comes from the past 
will have to be ignored, will have to be even attacked and vilified, but not because it comes from the past. It has to be understood first, and then you say you ask whether it's relevant or not. I don't know if you could hear it just there, that there's that sadness that Ahmed expresses for the fact that many intellectuals, intellectual works in the Muslim canon have been delegitimized and that they're not really part of what we're exposed to in the United States or in Western Europe, and that that's increasingly happening in the Arabic-speaking world, in the greater Muslim world, where a lot of these ideas originated. I think that's perhaps one of the book's greatest contributions. One of Ahmed's greatest contributions is to highlight the sadness in a very eloquent way. I hope that's what people take away from it. You, you vaguely reference ideas that had been lost. And that was something that I I felt in the book. I felt that there was a sadness for the fact that there was a canon and that to some extent, Islamic studies isn't necessarily included in it. That if you were to take like a general humanities class in any like university that offers these general humanities classes, right? Where you read like the classics that come from ancient Greece and Rome, where you read like Russian literature and you read, I don't know, um, Nietzsche that Islam isn't really part of that syllabus and that curriculum. I felt that there was some sadness in that. I, I don't know. I could feel it coming out of different points. I felt that, I mean, the book makes really good use of certain Muslim thinkers um, who belong to the canon of Islamic studies. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, const- I do think that there is a utility to, uh, of Islamic studies in the American university beyond, of course, educating people about Islam and teaching people about the richness of it. So the utility of Islamic studies in the American University, what, to you, what is it? Right. So here, this is not the right environment for uh, all these thinkers that I know and spend a lot of time with to be incorporated. Uh, there may have been a history of Narusht, for example, was familiar to people, uh, philosophers, until, say, the 16th or 17th century. And then they thought they made uh, sufficient strides to forget him or put him behind. But look, if that was available in Egypt, I'll just say something about the Muslim world. If there were classics that were the equivalent of what people do here, so just like they read Plato, Aristotle, etc., we would read our classics too, in addition to the Greek and others, because Muslims were interested in everything. So the classics in Islam would actually give you something like a global view. Uh, If that was available there, I wouldn't have been unhappy. But I came here and there is the condition that you described, that the American University can't be global, can't encompass everybody, and relegate us to, relegate relegate the ideas within the Muslim world. Of course, this is changing partly now, but not sufficiently. And again, it's too late to incorporate in that comprehensive sense. I mean, now, yes, history of science texts, for example, used to have a paragraph or a short chapter about science and Islam, and now they have maybe a little more. But that's, you see, this tokenism almost uh, confirms the problem. Because if it was integrated, you would understand mathematics differently. You would understand science differently. My son learned from his math teacher that Fibonacci, the 12th century mathematician, went to Tunisia to study, and that's how he introduced the zero. There was no zero until the 12th century in people who worked from Roman letters. Now, Fibonacci is more important, of course, in the story than his Tunisian teacher, because we don't know the Tunisian teacher's name. And I personally have to do additional research to know these guys who are kind of, uh, 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 you know, they appear only opaquely in the study of the Euro-American humanities. Well, that's why the Euro-American humanities and the Euro-American history of science is still not able to be global, because it, it doesn't know enough about all these. So, yeah, I'm sad. I am sad again about my limits as a human being because it would have been great if I could. I mean, one time I did this crazy experiment with my father-in-law, who's now very sick, but when he was still around and intellectually uh, present, uh, he's a medical doctor and he studies uh, the, the respiratory system and has some layperson's interest in medicine, history of medicine. But we, we, we tried to figure out if Messina, uh, it just didn't work. His section, the section that related to what he studied, what my father-in-law studied, the medicine is different, the herbs are different, the description of the system is different. We just failed. So there is a lot, and I'm not, I'm not alone, and I asked historians of science, of course, uh, 
you know, there were historians of science who were interested in very limited aspects of the history of science in Islam. Uh, Sabra, Rashid, there were people who worked on this, but, and, and they have tools, by the way, better than I do, right? Because they, they did Greek and they worked harder on the origins of these ideas before they entered into the Muslim academies. It's just, it's overwhelming. So to describe the sadness uh, succinctly, I am very sad that I'm just a human being because I can't study all these things. And I'm sad also that other people around me, uh, they're both human and biased in that they are willing to ignore that legacy because it's not current, right? It's not part of today's science. It's not connected to what's going on. You have to come today from Pakistan or Bangladesh or one of these countries and become part of the American Academy. And if you have any way of contributing, uh, not just as, as, a, as a modern person, but also something from your legacy, then maybe there will be a way to incorporate that legacy into today and therefore into the future. But it's limited, right? I mean, it's, a lot is lost, of course, and a lot cannot be recovered because these people came from, uh, who will come from Pakistan or Bangladesh don't know enough about their Islamic legacy, right? That's our problem. Well, we have to acknowledge that in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia and in the other parts of the Muslim world, people don't relate sufficiently to their legacy to bring it up. I'm... I, I think I go back and forth on how much, I mean, I was raised in the Middle East and I go back and forth on how much we lost, right? Because I think that, I, mean, I think it's a very complicated process and it differs from country to country, but okay, just to give you an example, I grew up in the West Bank, um, which is contrary to popular belief, a very beautiful place to grow up, um, a very complicated and beautiful and dangerous place to grow up in many different ways. But I think one of the greatest tragedies of the Israeli occupation is not necessarily the occupation itself. It's what the occupation indirectly stamped out. So the occupation encouraged, I mean, we're talking Islamic studies, so I'll just limit this to Islam. It encouraged Salafism, which I think can be broadly defined as the Islamic flavor of fundamentalism. It's important, of course, to emphasize that fundamentalism exists in every religion, in every ideology, et cetera, et cetera. That's my disclaimer. Um, and I think... The occupation and the economic hardship, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the economy breeds ideas. I think the economy is part of the context that can help breed ideas. Um, because ideas can travel, but do they always settle, right? Like if an idea travels somewhere, it can like pass through, but it needs something to transplant. And I think sometimes, I think a lot of that is due to the idea itself. And I think part of that is due to the context. I think that's where you can bring context back in. But in my own childhood, what I witnessed sort of the aftermath uh, of was that the Palestinian tragedy um, brought on by the occupation, brought on by different occupations, by different forces. So also being you know, part of the Jordanian country for very many years, then becoming part of Israeli, um, being occupied by Israel, um, being re-annexed. It bred a type of Salafism, okay? And I, what, what I find so tragic about that, and I, I find myself having to learn all this stuff in adulthood is it stamped out the diversity of Islamic ideas and, you know, uh, the diversity in terms of Islamic jurisprudence and Islamic law and people willing to refer to different schools of law. But of course, I think the biggest manifestation of this is Islamic mysticism. So, you know, Palestine, which was for many, many years, a breeding ground for different Sufi thinkers, for some of the greatest, um, Sufi commentators of the early, the late 19th and early 20th century, um, like Yusuf and Napani, um, but that was lost because of the triumph of Salafism. And it's something that I look back on and it's just, because I think one way that you could sort of cast the loss of ideas is this East versus West binary, right? And in modern history, that terrifies me. I think drawing binaries is just, is very dangerous because even if you were to put like a, per, a, a layer between two things, layers are permeable. Ideas can travel across different surfaces and boundaries. And um, yeah, I just, I, I don't like binaries, but I do think that certain other native ideas can overcome each other and overwhelm each other and act parasitical sometimes. Right. So borrowing is a very natural thing. As I said, it would be uh, 
unwise to pretend that a successful tradition is that tradition that doesn't get influenced by other traditions. It can't. If It is successful when it borrows and when it lends. Um, but so that, that part I agree with. Let's try to play with one idea that you uh, introduced. Uh, of course, Salafism is the worst. But is mysticism, that is the, uh, well, let's define it. I mean, I, I see in mysticism, I encountered it firsthand. I encountered mysticism as human beings, not, not as potential and possibilities and amazing things. And I saw in it like, true charlatanism, the, 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 the assertions that really the person himself or herself doesn't believe. That this is how you will experience the divine, and that temperature will arise. The cold temperature arises in your chest, and the colors that you see in your eyes—all these things. I mean, you know, they are in the books, of course. If you, I've started to read a little bit also because of these encounters. But is is so? Let me ask this question: Is the uh, universalism that we attribute to mysticism? really a property of mysticism or is it something that we have anyway and we like to see it now it's obvious that somebody like Ibn Arabi has a, a thing about universalism that he didn't like I mean there's somebody who lived <laughs> almost two halves of his life equal halves in Spain and in Syria and stood different worlds and he's seen a lot in the middle and uh, and and he liked metaphor, and people didn't like his metaphors, and attacked him. And he he he, he enjoyed almost uh, playing and and doing these puns. But at the end, is it really mysticism that allows you to be universal in Europe? I'm not mystical in any way, and I'm afraid of mysticism. But I I always look for that global side of things, and I want to understand beyond uh, what my little environment allows me to understand. But 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 it is not uncommon, okay, for people to attribute it to attribute this global approach to mysticism. And I think you did that, didn't you? So do you you want to engage me on this? Do you do you, do you actually believe that mysticism is the way to encompass everything? Right? To have your heart with the whatever, with the crosses and the crescents and as as the poetry has it in the uh, uh in, in the mystical tradition. Okay, so thus began a back and forth between myself and Ahmed on mysticism and Islam, often referred to as Sufism. But I'm going to spare you that partially because mysticism is so complicated, but also because our guns came out blazing and we begin to reference things that will require quite a lot of footnoting. One of us, I'll let you guess who, used the term cheap magic to describe mysticism. And then the other reacted, and it was all in good fun. I also just want to make sure that no practitioners of Sufism or mysticism or scholars of Sufism come after either of us, you know? Instead, let's skip ahead to what we discussed afterwards, maybe even as a result of our conversation on mysticism, which is what is Islamic studies? So Ahmed is about to use this wonderful example of how the branches of Muslim knowledge intersect. Uh, he's going to use the five daily prayers that are prescribed to Muslim. There's an early morning prayer, a noon prayer, a late afternoon prayer, an evening prayer, and then there's the night prayer. I do think that one of the problems of Islamic studies, and you can let me know what you think of this, I mean, first off, let's just like lay out what Islamic studies is, because I think that often when I talk to people about Islamic studies, I feel the need to say, well, we have like, um, like Arloom al-Din or Arloom al-Islamiyah, which we refer to in Arabic. And that's sort of can be very crudely, and I don't like this word, can be translated of like the sciences of Islam or the sciences of religion. And I always translate as Islamic knowledge or Islamic studies. The problem you run into is that Islamic studies is the word that like, the Western Academy uses when they interrogate Islam from a non-theological perspective. So you have theological Islamic studies and then you have non-theological Islamic studies. So I, I have problems with that. And I think in both of those, because they sort of run parallel to each other, of course, because one studies the other, but one sort of uses the, I mean, they use each other in different ways and we can get into that. 
is that within Islamic studies, you just have so much stuff, right? Like you have, I mean, think about Western knowledge. Um, think about you have biology, you have chemistry, you have physics, and you know, physics is considered the mother of all this stuff, but physics, chemistry, and biology all intersect, blah, 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 blah. You have to know what an atom is. Um, same with math. Um, you have this competition amongst, you know, the humanities and amongst the different, you know, bi- um, physical sciences for which one is the best one. And I think everyone claims that they're sort of the hand, that they are, you know, the main one and the other ones are just the handmaidens to it. I think within the Islamic knowledges studies, you have the, sort of the same thing. So within Islamic knowledge, you have Quranic exegesis, you have syntax, you have grammar, um, you have Sufism, you have to some, yeah, you, I mean, Sufism is also a very complicated term. You have Islamic jurisprudence. I mean, all these terms are problematic, but they all intersect is sort of my point. And all these branches of knowledge support each other. Um, so I do think that they all are, I mean, people who were, you know, the Islamic um, practitioners of jurisprudence, the Muslim practitioners of jurisprudence that you study, many of them are practicing Sufis, right? So it is important to sort of see how all these ideas intersect. Um, and I do worry that that's something that at least, I mean, as a Muslim, I do worry that that's something we're losing is that we do pick on things. That, I mean, you, you alluded to this, that things become trendy in lieu of the others. Like, I, I don't think that there is that sort of, that is something that was lost is there isn't this overwhelming, you have to study everything together sense. I agree. And, and the, yeah, so there's one concession I need to make. The, uh, the human being is not just intellect, it's also a heart. And that heart, the way I understand it, is the one that fills in the gaps once the human intellect is, is exhausted. So, yes, it's, it's not a bad thing to have a little bit of that spiritual orientation to complete, to, to fill in the gaps. Because w- once you exhaust your thinking, let's say it's a case, you're trying to solve a case as a judge or working as an expert. Yeah, the, as we said, you will decide uh, based on what is close to certainty. So there is that little gap. And you leave it to what? You leave it to that emotional, spiritual side. So you can go to bed saying, well, you know, it maybe it's a moment of comfort with being human. That just like being human is, is, a, is a problem because you, you would like to do more, you'd like to know more. But it's also a good thing because here I'm done. So, uh, you know, the prayer is a, is a mystery to me, the five-time prayer. And I know this will sound just very strange to people who know that the fiqh begins with that. It begins with washing yourself and praying. But it always sounded like it's something that needs a lot of thinking. Why do that? Why do that all the time and every day? But an argument, a good argument for it that I totally accept is that, first of all, it's only 25 minutes or so and in a given day. And it gives you a break from this uh, exhaustion, constant exhaustion and employment of your mind because it, it breaks down. I mean, it's like any little light bulbs could, could, could kind of stop working, could break down, and it, and it needs to be refurbished. Uh, so, yes, the, 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 the fuqaha or Sufis, they come to that moment instead of drinking wine or instead of doing some of these things that our contemporaries like to do to, to kind of lighten up, they do that. They could listen to the Quran or recite it or pray or uh, get into some kind of spiritual mood, do victory and so on. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Again, as long as it doesn't uh, uh, fight epistemologically with the rest of their knowledge, it has its place. Because again, because the human mind is not going to solve all the problems. So it's already left space for that. But that space should not expand. You should not get to a situation if you open up Al-Bahr al-Muhid, Zakashi's text, long text on Usul al-Fiqh. He discusses ilham. So what is ilham? That's inspiration. Is this a source of law? Well, how could it be? What if I am a judge and I keep contemplating a case and I'm really struggling and I can't solve it? And then I see a dream. I have a dream and it solves the case for me. Can I take that to the court the next day? That's one scenario. Second scenario, I'm in a debate with you. We're both accomplished scholars, but we kind of hit the end and we can't find the decisive argument. But one of us has a dream. Should I bring this up and make it a discussion? How about for myself? If I'm really struggling about a, a single act, say a contract, and I'm not sure if it is valid, it's for me. And I could solve the problem for myself. Or let's say it's a divorce, you know, 
I'm not sure if I actually uh, 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 divorced my wife or not. Can I solve my own problem based on that inspiration? And the answer, the only decent answer to all these questions is no, no, you shouldn't do that. You should forget about the damn dream because there's nothing to it other than what you were thinking before. It's just a continuation of the thinking, most likely. You know, so you can tell, of course, what I think about all the interpretation of dream literature. It's, it's, I mean, I guess it's fine for entertainment, but it's nothing serious. You can't really build your life based on, on that sort of thing. Um, so that's what I mean. Yeah, so there is space for some kind of Sufism, for some kind of spiritual, uh, mystical, non-linear, non-logical thinking to fill in the gaps that already exist because of the uh, inability of the systematic mind to go all the way in every uh, area. Uh, but it shouldn't expand because then it becomes a problem. I'm going to read for you a selection not from Pitfalls of Scholarship itself, but rather an article Ahmed wrote about Pitfalls of Scholarship, summarizing it for the popular website, The Maidan, which I highly recommend you all check out. Here goes. An aspiring graduate student daydreamt about finishing the project of Sanhuri Pasha, died in 1971, the father of Egypt's civil law. In 1949, Sanhuri's civil code became the law of the Egyptian land, merging modern Franco-Egyptian jurisprudence with Egypt's deeper millennium-long tradition of Islamic law that is embedded in its population's social and market standards and allowing a limited measure of forum shopping that involved Russian, German, and Chinese legal institutions. No similar comprehensive code was devised in the area of its criminal, administrative, personal status, or commercial law. The unrealistic dream haunted the student as he took a bachelor's degree in Arabic and Islamic studies, followed by three years of study of modern Egyptian law and a master's degree culminating in a 388-page thesis that attempted to answer the question, why didn't medieval Islamic law accept normalized judicial review? The student ended up leaving Egypt for good 20 years ago to settle for an academic career as an Islamic law scholar in the United States. So that selection is autobiographical. It's about Ahmed himself. And we're going to talk about his interests and why he enjoys his interests. And it's a little bit more than just an intellectual autobiography. It's more about how he feels about Islamic law and why it appeals to him. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a, a moment that encompassed, my interest encompassed medieval Islamic law and modern Egyptian law, especially after I read modern law for three years and uh, realized that I have friends also who didn't just die 500 years ago, but died just 50 years ago or died when I was born. Like Sanhuri was, died the same year I was born. So when I started to have these modern friends, I, w I was happy to connect the two. But I was still narrow in the sense that at that time, uh, I hadn't co come to the United States. I hadn't seen the modern academy really in a certain sense. I saw it only when I, when I came here and discovered... Uh, Discovered also that in Egypt, of course, we were consuming really old theory. We were just happy with old ideas that, you know, because you also want to remember that was 97. The Internet age um, shortened times and made the connections between the modern North American Academy and the Continental Academy on the one hand and the modern academy in places like Egypt and other areas, especially in the humanities, that it, it, your generation is just considerably luckier than mine in being acquainted with everything at the same time. I didn't have that. Right? It took a while for me to notice. Of course, I heard about Foucault and Nietzsche, but you know, the stuff in Arabic that's written about Foucault and Nietzsche, it's, it's, it's French Arabic and it's German Arabic. It's not really readable. I now go back to these Arabic texts on Nietzsche, and now that I did two years of German and read a lot of English, I could understand that Arabic now to an extent. It's just, it's for a certain kind of audience. Um, so, yeah, so I, I transitioned out of this narrowness. This is a narrow moment, right? The origin story it tells you about a time when I was still uh, an academic in the narrow sense. I would have probably, if I had continued, with that doctrine, I would have been one of these scholars who is very comfortable only with in, in Franco-Egyptian jurisprudence and 
the borrowing from the people of Islamic law to the extent that there is that. And I would have been involved in these arguments about the Egyptian legal identity. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, I wouldn't have never heard of, I would have never cared about the Romans or modern scientists or or epistemology in that general and pure sense. It would have been much narrower and much more limited. Would have been a different person. Not necessarily worse, but it would have been a different person. Maybe more successful, I don't know. But you know, one danger I could imagine myself encountering is being in Egypt in 2011 and 2012 and all the passion that came with that and got a lot of people into jail. Yo, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was totally naive. I mean, I spent months trying to understand the news. I'm not good at this kind of thing, actually. I read the news and I was always easily a month or two behind the events. And when, I mean, there were people in Egypt telling me that since March of 2013, they were waiting for June to happen. And it took me even a while after June to, to notice one. Yeah, wow, that was happening all the time. And I, I should have known better because in my sense, you know, you could you could say whatever you want about the Egyptian military, but they're entitled. I mean, they feel that they're better than other people, so at least the high leadership. So the fact that they let this democratic government even last 12 months that was nice, you know, what I mean? <laughs> that was too, too kind in a way. So, yeah, I would have been swept. I would have been, uh, I would have made a lot of mistakes. Not political, you know, not that good about the carving uh, words and uh, tailoring sentences and so on. And there would have been a cost. But I understand, I feel like I understand why you like studying Islamic jurisprudence. I think there's, I, I can almost sense that you like the practicality of these ideas um, and the system that they represent and how they connect with other things. That's just a guess that I'm going to throw out there. It is true. It is true. And I, I like the imperfection of it, too. You see how uh, I'm uh, partly uncomfortable with mysticism because it has this weird stability. Well, actually, that might not be fair, but sometimes it sounds to me that people have discovered truths that are, that are eternal or something like that. And uh, yeah, you're right. The law teaches you and focusing on human action as opposed to human uh, doctrines or faiths or the understanding of the world. Uh, f focusing on, uh, although they're related, but you, that focusing on life, markets, families, crime and punishment. Uh, you see how every time we say this is what we think, we know that it could be wrong. And that's just, actually, that's a lot of comfort, too. Now, there are degrees of that. You could have the kind of, van means uh, very similar to, or being close to certain. Uh, so, so there are degrees of that. Sometimes you're really, really close to certain. You can see that the alternative is so unlikely. But sometimes it's like 51%. Uh, you know, I, and judges do deal with that all the time. Muftis also have to deal with it, that you just see the evidence. Yes, it's unlikely that X happened, but it is not so unlikely. And yeah, you live with that uncertainty. It's just the nature of human life. And yeah, so you're right. I'm comfortable with it because of that. It, it, it always reminds me of my humanity, I think. So that's it. That's my interview with Ahmed Atif Ahmed. And I highly recommend you pick up the book or read the article of Maidan, which we'll link to in the show description. And I just want to say another endorsement for the book. I know that I have been singing its praises throughout the entirety of this episode, throughout my conversation with him, through my endorsement of the book itself. But I think what I like about it is precisely that it reads like a philosophical treaties. It's a meditation on knowledge. It It is also easy to read, despite the fact that I just used the words philosophical treaties. And I think that it is food for thought for anyone who thinks about knowledge and who cares about it. Which, But I also think, and this is my endorsement for the graduate students in the audience, that the book reads like someone who really cares about you and who's thought this through and who isn't arrogant, giving you good advice. And I think the clever trick he employs here is whenever he says he's giving advice, he says, 
this is the advice I give my grad students. So you know that he's not telling you directly this is something you should do, but this is something that he's thought through. And he said to people who look up to him, people who there is a relationship of mentee and mentorship established. So to conclude this episode, I will read you a selection of pitfalls of scholarship that I'm taking slightly out of context. That way it can be universalized. The advice can only be something like this. Keep asking the questions that interest you until you are satisfied with an answer and sit down and give the answer in as comprehensive an expression you can. There is nothing wrong with asking the same question more than once, even with multiple years intervals. In fact, it is an indication of maturity to keep coming back to certain basic questions. So keep asking the same questions, and if your answer changes, so be it. Be aware that some of the talk about method is superfluous. Yes, you need to be systematic. Do not forget what you thought yesterday when you start thinking today. 